October the 8th, 1945, a military commission acting under the authority of General Douglas MacArthur began the trial of the infamous Tiger of Malaya, Tomeyuki Yamashita, for his involvement in war crimes performed at Manila and other places in the Philippine Islands while a commander of the Japanese forces. He was charged to have unlawfully disregarded and failed to discharge his duty as a commander to control the operations of the members of his command, permitting them to commit brutal atrocities and other crimes against the people of the United States, Filipinos, and their allies. The commission heard over 286 persons, received over 423 exhibitions, with a record of 4,055 pages. On December the 7th, 1945, the four-year anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, the military commission found that General Yamashita was guilty as charged and sentenced to death by hanging, set to take place on February the 23rd of 1946. General Yamashita petitioned the Supreme Court of the United States, but the opinion of the court rejected his petition, as did General MacArthur and President Harry S. Truman. So, on February the 23rd, General Yamashita was about to be hanged at Los Banos Laguna prison camp, and after climbing 13 steps leading to the gallows, he asked if he could make a final statement. He issued this through his translator, Hamamoto, and forgive me, I had to make amendments for its coherency as it was quite a rough translation. It is as follows, quote, I was carrying out my duty as Japanese high commander of the Japanese army in the Philippine Islands to control my army with my best during wartime. Until now, I believe I did my best throughout my army. As I said during the Manila Supreme Court, I did with all my capacity, so I am not ashamed in front of God for what I have done when I die. But if you say to me, you do not have any ability to command the Japanese army, I should say nothing for it, because it is my own nature. Now the war criminal trial in Manila Supreme Court is finishing up, so I wish to be justified under your kindness and right. I know that all of your American military affairs have always been tolerant and held rightful judgment. When I have been investigated in the Manila court, I have had a good treatment, kindful attitude from your good-natured officers who all the time have protected me. I will never forget what they have done for me, even if I have died. I don't blame my executioner. I'll pray God bless them. I will pray for the emperor's long life and his prosperity forever. End of quote. Forces under General Yamashita performed some of the most horrifying acts of war in human history. Just one out of several war crimes that General Yamashita was held responsible for was called the Manila Massacre. As the Americans were advancing towards Manila in 1945 to liberate the city from the Japanese, the Japanese troops before dying in defense or fleeing to the mountains of Luzon took their anger and frustration out on the civilians of the city. Violent mutilations, murder, and rape ran rapid throughout the city in places such as hospitals, colleges, and churches. Here is a quote from orders given to the Japanese forces to justify the Manila Massacre. It is as follows, quote, The Americans who have penetrated into Manila have about a thousand troops, 
and there are several thousand Filipino soldiers under the Commonwealth Army and the other organized guerrillas. Even women and children have become guerrillas. All people on the battlefield, with the exception of Japanese military personnel, Japanese civilians, and special construction units will be put to death. End of quote. That quote, by the way, comes courtesy of a very good book I would recommend. The Most Dangerous Man in America, The Making of Douglas MacArthur by Mark Perry. The Americans interviewed many survivors, and one doctor, Antonio Gersbert, told U.S. personnel that his father and brother were murdered at Palacio del Gobernador, and that, quote, I am one of the few survivors, not more than 50 in all out of more than 3,000 men herded into Fort San Diego, and two days later were all massacred. End of quote. The Japanese had used Filipino women and children as human shields on the front line against the Americans, and those who survived that ordeal were most likely murdered afterwards by the fleeing Japanese. The Japanese conducted mop-up operations to clear a path north of Manila where they executed 54,000 Filipinos. This included men, women, children, and even pregnant women as they passed through the towns. The Bayview Hotel was designated a rape center, according to testimony presented at General Yamashita's trial. 400 women and girls were rounded up as young as 12 years old, and they were taken to the hotel for Japanese officers to take turns raping them. The combined total of civilian deaths for the Battle of Manila was around 100,000, most of which were attributed to the massacres done by the Japanese forces. Some historians cite the civilian casualty rate to be as high as 500,000 as a result of the Manila massacre alone. Now just imagine, this was one city. In one of many countries the Japanese occupied, how many civilians do you think went through this? How did this all happen? How can such horror be inflicted by one human onto another? Let me remind you straight away, the Japanese forces were responsible for probably the most heinous war crimes ever committed, but the Americans, they also got their chance to do many of their own. No one was clean. Clean is an interesting word, as the Pacific War has been called an ugly war, and for good reason, as you can see from the accounts I have just given. Now it goes without saying, this did not all start in 1945. Our adventure takes place way before this, and in order to really tell you that story, we first need to explain how we all got here. Welcome to the Pacific War Podcast, week by week, and allow me to finally introduce myself. My name is Craig Watson, and I will be your guide as we tell the story of the Pacific War, week by week, from Pearl Harbor until the surrender of Japan, or maybe even perhaps until we see the very story I just gave you about the trial of Yamashita. Yet before we can even talk about the start of the Pacific War, we need to tell you how it all came about. And for that, this will be part of a series of prelude episodes. I would also like to take the chance to inform you that this podcast is only made possible because of the work done at Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Over there, you will find the same story, so to speak, but in a typical Kings and Generals fashion. Think of it this way. The week-by-week -week episode on the YouTube channel is the macro version of the event, 
while this podcast will be the micro. While kings and generals will be showing you maps with thousands of units leapfrogging island to island, this podcast is instead going to give you the individual stories of those poor souls on those islands. A catchphrase emerged after World War II in regards to the Pacific War. Many called it the war that will never make it into the books. That was because the horrific reality of what the Pacific War was was a little bit too much for the average person to handle. So think of it this way, in 2021, the Pacific War is now the war that will never make it onto YouTube. Because, as you all know, YouTube does not allow for all the gruesome details to be unfolded. While kings and generals will list the casualties, here on the podcast, we are going to tell you what actually happened to those people. So saying that, please go over to YouTube and watch each episode week by week where they will show you the events in extraordinary detail with animated battles from their very gifted animators. Here on the podcast, like I just said, I will be giving you more of a, let's say, theatrical look. This podcast will tell the events raw and uncut with personal accounts from those who witnessed the events as they unfolded. We will expand much more on the information to give you a more complete story of the Pacific War, possibly ever. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue helping us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Hey, and if you still find you need more of a Pacific War fix, hell, please subscribe to my channel, the Pacific War channel, over at YouTube. What a title for a channel, I know. At my channel, the focus has largely been 19th century Asia, so if you want a more in-depth look at things like the Opium Wars, the Taiping Rebellion, or the First Sino-Japanese War, well please go subscribe to my channel. It would mean a lot, as I am quite a small channel. Now without further ado, I want to take you on a journey to see how the world was before the war in Asia kicked off, starting with how the West engaged with Asia in the 15th century. This is episode 0.1, Imperialism in the East. Once a land of ancient empires and legendary rulers, Asia saw itself turn into the colony of expanding European powers in the early modern period. The Western world was drawn to Asia for its silk and spice, and their colonization efforts were initially directed to harness the continent's economic power. You see, during a large part of human history, Asia, particularly China, was the economic powerhouse of the entire world. Ezra Vogel stated in her amazing book, China and Japan, Facing History, that for most of China's history, quote, Chinese leaders, confident of the greatness of their rich civilization, were never eager to learn from other countries." End of quote. This was very true for most of human history. China not only had an incredible culture and civilization that basically no one else could compete with, for a long portion it also remained the wealthiest. The Qinglong Emperor, who ruled between 1735 to 1796, famously stated, quote, our land is so wealthy and prosperous that we possess all things. Therefore, there is no need to exchange the produce of foreign barbarians for our own. End of quote. By foreign barbarians, he is referring to Westerners, by the way. 
If you pull out a graph looking at the world economy over the past 10 centuries, you indeed see China by large is the dominant leader until the early 19th century. Something like 35% of the world's economy is just China at one point. Now you've probably heard stories about Marco Polo. Indeed, many people were trying to get to China and the rest of Asia to trade and obtain massive amounts of wealth. As European powers tried to open up trade with Asia, they eventually started to use more and more force. And by the start of the 20th century, the Eastern world was almost entirely in the hands of colonial empires. So stating that, we're going to do a quick rundown of how Europe expanded into Asia and the Pacific. In 1492, as we all know, Europeans discovered the New World, or rather, they were the next group to rediscover the New World, and this ushered in an age of maritime exploration. For the past century, the Portuguese explorers were trying to figure out a way to bypass Muslim territories in order to trade with West Africa. They were also seeking a way, much like everyone else, to reach the Indies and its infamous spice trade. The Portuguese sent an expedition into African waters and at long last discovered that the Indian Ocean was accessible through the Cape of Good Hope. On May the 20th, 1498, an expedition led by Vasco da Gama managed to reach India by sea. This led the Portuguese colonial empire to be born. Soon they established entrepôts, um, entrepôts are basically trade outposts in ports, and they had established them in Koichi, Calicut, Gua, Dai, Darman, Pulekat, Colombo, and Chitogong, among many other places. Did I mention you should probably have a map handy? Yes, we will be talking about many fascinating places in Asia during multiple time periods, so if you happen to have some older and modern maps, it might help you greatly. If not, hey, just enjoy the ride. In Southeast Asia, the Portuguese eventually captured Malacca and established settlements in the Spice Islands of Solor, Ternat, Ambon, East Timor, and Makassar. Not bad for a tiny European country, eh? This also led to the disruption and diverted trade of the region, and of course, the spread of Christianity in Eastern Indonesia. Commercial contact was established with mainland Southeast Asia in places such as Burma, where Portuguese mercenaries became essential for the expansion of the Tonggu Empire. So a little mixing with the locals, so to speak. In China, after quite a long period of conflict, the Portuguese were permitted to establish an entrepôt in Macau. They also began to trade with Japan, which was going through the Sengoku Jidai Civil War period. As you can imagine, where there is 16th century Portuguese, there is the spread of Christianity, and in Japan a powerful daimyo, daimyos being something of great samurai warlord vassals who controlled regions of Japan under the shogun, well, one daimyo had converted to Catholicism in a small fishing village in Nagasaki. Omara Sumitara was his name, and he was the first daimyo to convert to Christianity in 1563. He opened Nagasaki up to trade with the Portuguese, and soon, Nagasaki became the center of trade in the region. Meanwhile, the expedition of Ferdinand Magellan, who was also looking for a route to the East Indies, resulted in the first ever recorded circumnavigation of the Earth in 1522. This allowed the Crown of Spain to discover and gradually colonize the Philippine archipelago. The Spaniards quickly established themselves in the spice island of Tidor, sparking a decade of conflicts with the neighboring Portuguese at Ternat, as you can imagine. 
Their little spat would be concluded with the Treaty of Zaragoza in 1529, granting the Philippines to Spain and the Moluccas to Portugal. They could get along after all. They were both Catholic. Just you wait. Religion is going to be a major issue later on. From their center in Manila, Spanish colonists would go on to settle Guam, the Marianas, the Carolines, and the Palu Islands. Then in 1580, the Iberian Union of Portugal and Spain was established. I did say they could get long, after all. But this also came with the problem of England, France, and the Dutch Republic beginning to create their own overseas empires. The Portuguese colonies would suffer as a result of this in particular. The Dutch would be the main culprits for the downfall of the Portuguese, successfully attacking their possessions in Asia and eventually taking control of Malacca, Ceylon, Mulacas, and the southern Malabar coast, and regions of Coromandel and Surat. Oh yes, the Dutch were quite outlandish. The initial course taken by the Dutch East Indies would be to found a chartered company, the VOC, Verenig Oostendisch Compagnie, as we know it today in English as the Dutch East India Company. Then they made the colonial center in the city of Jakarta, which the Dutch renamed Batavia. From there, the Dutch would continue to assault the commercial interests of the Portuguese, slowly expanding their control over Southeast Asia, leaving only East Timor and Macau in the hands of the Portuguese. Those poor Portuguese just getting bullied by the little Dutch. They would also colonize the southern tip of the island of Formosa, modern-day Taiwan, to use as headquarters for attacks against the Philippines. In response, the Spaniards established their own colony in the north of the island, although it was soon overtaken by the Dutch. The fate of Formosa would finally be decided when the Chinese warlord Kong Jinga invaded in 1661, managing to take full control of the island. An interesting guy, Kong Jinga. He was also known as Zheng Xingung. He was a Ming loyalist who resisted the Qing conquest of China later in the 17th century. He literally took all the Ming loyalists he could find, brought them to the island, and tried to create an army to defeat the Manchus and reclaim the throne. It did not pan out, but quite an interesting guy nonetheless. If you'd like to know more about this interesting character, you can go check out Kings and Generals. They made an episode dedicated to him. Ironically, the Taiwanese aboriginal tribes who initially helped the Dutch against the Chinese during the previous conflict called the Guo Huiyi Rebellion of 1652 decided to turn against the Dutch and defected to Kong Jinga's Chinese forces when he invaded. They made a delightful time hunting and beheading the Dutch people, destroying Protestant schools and textbooks made for them by the Dutch. Anyways, Kongjinga would eventually use the island as a military base for Ming loyalists after the Qing took over mainland China. Meanwhile, in Japan, the Tokugawa shogunate started to show some animosity towards religious intentions of the Catholic Portuguese. The daimyo of Shimabara Domain, Matsukura Matsue, was enforcing very unpopular policies, drastically raising taxes for the construction of a Shimabara castle, and he violently prohibited Christianity. This led to an alliance of ronin and Catholic peasants led by Amakusa Shiro to rebel against the Tokugawa shogunate over Katsue's policies. Just to give you an idea, the book by Marian Jensen, Making of Modern Japan, states at this point in time there is an estimated 300,000 Christianized Japanese throughout Japan who are being hunted down, executed, or apostatized. A ton of samurai were cast out for being Christian, 
and that's why we see an alliance of ronin and catholic peasants here. In response, the Tokugawa shogunate sent a force of 125,000 troops and even requested aid from the Dutch. They asked for gunpowder, cannons, and other war materials, which the Dutch were only too happy to provide, but they went a step even further, they joined the conflict. You see, this was a time in history when Protestants and Catholics were like cats and dogs. They would fight any time they had a chance to. When the Dutch heard the Japanese were suppressing Catholics, it intrigued their interest, to say the least, so they sent a few ships to help. The rebellion ended up with a large siege of Hara Castle, where the Catholic rebels had taken refuge, and the Tokugawa forces alongside the Dutch ships bombarded the castle with approximately 426 rounds in the space of 15 days. The rebels were literally pummeled. They even sent a letter to the Tokugawa shogunate's forces lamenting them for allowing the Dutch to help. It is as follows, quote, Are there no longer courageous soldiers in the realm to do combat with us? And weren't they shamed to have called the assistance of foreigners against our small contingent? End of quote. The suppression of the rebels was a success, and it led to the expulsion of the Portuguese in 1639, who were largely blamed for fueling the Catholic rebellion. This also led to the establishment of the Sakoku isolationist policy for Japan. The Sakoku policy meant that Japan would not allow its residents out, nor let any foreign barbarians in. However, there were certain small loopholes. As one could expect, the Dutch benefited from helping the Tokugawa shogunate, and a man-made island named Dujima in Nagasaki, which originally was going to be for the Portuguese traders, was now exclusively given to the Dutch. Dujima would serve as the only point of entry for any western barbarian for very little trade with Japan, and the Dutch would have a monopoly over it. There was still the issue of Christianity, but the great Japanese thinkers figured out a way to make sure no pesky Christians would make a mess on Japanese soil again. They devised a test, called the Fumi-e test. They would place a picture of the Virgin Mary and Jesus on the ground, and those who would come onto Dujima were to step on the picture to prove that they were not Catholics. This act was not blasphemous for Protestants, so the Dutch would easily perform this task, whenever they came to Dejima to trade. They would also make sure to hide all of their Bibles and crosses before entering the harbor. Good idea. So the Portuguese hegemony over the east was falling apart, and the British and French empires began establishing their own chartered companies in the 17th century. The French arrived pretty late to the scene and established a few colonies in India, the British East India Company quickly set out and found trading posts in Sumatra, Bengal, and India. From there, the British expanded their control over Bengal, establishing their first colony in Malaysia with the acquisition of the Penang Island, and managed to expel the Dutch from Ceylon. Yes, let's not forget, this is also a time when the British are pretty much attacking the Dutch anywhere that they can, stealing a lot of their colonies in the process. Oh, how the turntables. Once the British had gained a foothold over Ceylon, they soon warred against the kingdom of Kandy. And that's spelt with a K, by the way. Yes, there was a monarch on an island of Sri Lanka by this name. I found this quite humorous too when I found it out for the first time. The British proceeded to establish a protectorate over the entirety of Ceylon and the neighboring Maldives. Following a series of conflicts with the French and Dutch empires, 
the British would manage to take most of their possessions in India, becoming the dominant European power in the region. Within a century, most of the Indian subcontinent gradually fell under the rule of the British East India Company, which prompted the establishment of the British Raj in 1858 to assume direct control over all of India. In Burma, relations with the British East India Company had always been tense after the Burmese annexation of Arakan, leading to the First Anglo-Burmese War of 1824. The British were fighting to claim control over northeastern India, and they ended up defeating the Burmese and forcing them to pay an indemnity of one million pounds sterling, with a commercial treaty being signed that favored, well, you guessed it, the British. So the British took Manipur, Assam, Arakan, and Tenasserim. This was all accompanied by the birth of British supremacy in Asian coastal waters. A second Anglo-Burmese war broke out in 1852, in which the British won again and annexed the province of Lower Burma, leaving the Burmese states in shambles. The Burmese would try for a third time to fight during the Third Anglo-Burmese War of 1885, and you guessed it, the British won again, leaving poor Burma to simply be under British control. Did you ever wonder why there was so much conflict in that area of the world today? Lots of history lots of grievances. In the 19th century, the British decided to take a more expansionistic role in Malaysia, because why not stop there when you're on a roll, I guess? They sponsored a coup in the Sultanate of Johor and founded the colony of Singapore. By the way, at this point, if you're wondering why I'm listing all these places in Asia and who is grabbing them, note many of these places will become focal points of the Pacific War, and whom controlled them often ended up fighting over them. Anyways, the British eventually negotiated with the Dutch for the cession of Malacca and the remaining Dutch forts in India in exchange for all British possessions in Sumatra and the recognition of Dutch rights in Indonesia. British Malaya would continue to grow across the century as the Strait Settlements were established and the Malay Sultanates were gradually annexed as protectorates. At the same time, the British established a protectorate over the Raj of Sarawak in northwestern Borneo and then established a colony in the Labuan Islands. I would like to make something of a note here. The Dutch, for the most part, are losing their pieces of Asia left, right, and center, but one place will still be flying the Dutch flag throughout this story, that being Dujima. A lot of people think that Sakoku period Japan meant that Japan was completely closed off to the world, but this is far from the truth. Japan was allowing for a small amount of trade with the Dutch at Dujima specifically for the purpose of learning what was going on in the rest of the world. The trade was quite insignificant for the Japanese, you see. What they actually were doing was gathering news, at an annual rate no less. Yet Japan kept its Sakoku policy going for as long as it could because it was the Tokugawa's only method of maintaining control over most of Japan can't let any pesky daimyos trade with some foreign barbarians, get their hands on some really pesky weapons, and then overthrow the shogun, can we now? Meanwhile, the French, yes, they still exist in Asia, they would be taking a great interest in the region of Indochina. After enjoying very good relations with Vietnam, which would turn very, very sour and feed into the Vietnam Wars of the 20th century, mind you, the French Empire would start to continually intervene in the country in the 19th century, culminating with an attack on Touraine and the founding of the colony of Cochin, China. In 1867, all of southern Vietnam fell under French control, 
and a protectorate over Cambodia was officially established. The French would also go on to establish protectorates over the islands of New Caledonia, Tahiti, Tahuta, Wallace, and Futana. Initially, the Tahitians would offer strong resistance against the colonists, yet they would be subdued at last, and the French would go on to expand across modern-day French Polynesia. With the British, they would also establish an Anglo-French condominium over the New Hebrides, with one English side and one other French, because that would not spell any conflicts later on, the French and British have always been perfect neighbors. Now we get to a major point in history, known as the Opium Wars. You see, when Britain gained control over India, they also acquired one of the greatest places on earth for the cultivation of opium. Britain had also lost the Revolutionary War against the newly formed United States of America, alongside many skirmishes with France, and their wars cost them dearly, depleting their silver reserves. Meanwhile, Britain had spent so much time in delightful Asia that it became dependent on tea imports from China, and when I say dependent, I mean financially dependent and literally addicted. Yes, the good chaps of Britain were literally addicted to tea, and the only currency China exchanged for was silver, as China was for a long amount of history the hoarder of silver in the world. The British no longer had any silver to pay for the tea, and the British desperately needed their tea fix. Now the British did have one thing going on for them, opium cultivation in India. This led the British to have a grand idea what if they traded opium for silver and then used that silver to pay for tea? Now, to make sure the nation of Britain was not directly doing what is basically a drug cartel operation, the British began to smuggle opium into Canton via private charters with the help of some very less ethically inclined Chinese businessmen, and a booming operation was made. Oh, and during all of this, the substance of opium was officially banned in China, if you were wondering. As you can imagine, silver started to pour out of China to pay for the opium at an exponential rate, freaking out the Daogong Emperor, and alongside this, the people of China were falling victim to the illicit drug. It was causing so much social upheaval, the Chinese and British ended up fighting two opium wars over the matter. The British won both wars, the second war with the help of France, would you believe it or not, and this began what is known in Chinese history as a century of humiliation. The consequences were horrific for China. They ceded Hong Kong Island to Britain and signed unfair treaties that persisted literally up to World War II. The Qing Dynasty also saw massive backlash from the population, which erupted into countless rebellions, such as the Nian Rebellions, the Taiping Rebellion, which was the bloodiest war in history prior to World War I. Literally 30 to a possible million people died in this civil war in China. You heard that right. It's one of the most horrific events in human history. Many in the Western world have never even heard of this war. Now, I'm really oversimplifying the two opium wars and the Taiping Rebellion. Coincidentally, if you really want to learn more details about these events, well, you could go over to my YouTube channel, The Pacific War Channel. Over there, I have three episodes dedicated to each event. They're about 45 minutes each, and I will stop shamelessly plugging myself now. Let's carry on. Alongside what I've just said, if you'd like a book on the Opium Wars, which I found extremely helpful and interesting, I can't recommend it enough, it is called 
The Opium Wars, The Addiction of One Empire and Corruption of Another by W. Haynes III and Frank Sinello. Anyways, the British and French actually helped quell the Taiping Rebellion as it hurt the opium trade and eventually the Kowloon Peninsula was ceded to Britain to expand their region of Hong Kong. Now, as for the Russian Empire, which over the last centuries has been expanding across Central Asia and Siberia, it would also go on to annex the entire region of Outer Manchuria. In 1884, the French Empire would obtain control over northern Vietnam following their victory over China in another war, thus consolidating their colony in Indochina. But the success of the French also threatened the British position in the region, because they are just perfect neighbors after all. Did I mention I am from Quebec? So I might know a thing or two about English-French relations. Les So this prompted the French to declare war against the Burmese, and then they annexed the province of Upper Burma. This would leave the Kingdom of Siam, present-day Thailand, entirely surrounded by European powers, and the Siamese would have to relinquish some territories on the frontiers to maintain their independence. Thus, the British received the Shan states and some possessions in Malaya, while the French enlarged their Indo-Chinese colony with the addition of modern-day Laos. You know, at this point, you're probably thinking, wow, these European powers just kick open the door and steal everything they can get away with. And yeah, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. In the 19th century, the Dutch had also started to gradually expand their East Indies across the maritime Southeast Asia, and by 1920, they had acquired the modern-day borders of Indonesia. Meanwhile, the British expanded into Brunei, North Borneo, and managed to colonize Fiji, Christmas Island, Cocos Islands, the Pitcairn Islands, the Union Islands, the Southern Solomon Islands, the Gilbert Islands, and the Elise Islands. Wow, the British are really on a roll. By the 20th century, Great Britain also colonized the islands of Tonga and Nui, the Phoenix Islands, the southern eastern side of the island of New Guinea, Yet the crown jewel of their oceanic empire would be the colonies of Australia and New Zealand, from which the British controlled all their Pacific possessions. Yes, the place where they sent all of their worst criminals to colonize. Those poor delinquents had nothing but lobster to eat as they built those colonies. Some sad little Canadian humor there. So at the end of this century, with the assassination of German Christian missionaries in Shandong province of China, This would spark a conflict with a lot of the European powers, culminating with a scramble for concessions in 1898 that awarded the Germans with the lease of Qijiao Bay and Tianjin. The British got a lease over Weihai Wei, the new territories of Hong Kong, and the French got a lease over Guangzhou Wan. The Italians made demands for territory concessions in Zhejiang province of China, but the Qing dynasty simply refused them. There has to be some very embarrassing and hilarious story underlying that one. What is quite fascinating is all of this carving up of China led to the Boxer Rebellion of 1900, in which the very rightfully angry people of China tried to repel the foreigners, and Christianity for that matter, and the Qing government eventually joined them. The infamous Dowager Empress Zhiji made some incredible quotes during this time, by the way. One I really like was in response to two sides of the Qing court arguing if they should join the boxer's suicidal cause against the Western powers or if they should concede to the Western powers after already doing so countless other times. As you can imagine, the reality of these choices were quite grave. On one hand, you could throw your hat in with the boxers. You most likely will be beaten by the Western powers. 
On the other hand, if you concede to them, the population of China, who already does not like your Manchu ruling class dynasty, well, they might just rebel for the hundredth time, and maybe get rid of you this time. While these arguments were being made, Empress Dowager Zhizhi stated this, quote, Now they, the Western powers, have started the aggression, and the extinction of our nation is imminent. If we just fold our arms and yield to them, I would have no face to see our ancestors after death. If we must perish, why don't we fight to the death? End of quote. Well, eight European nations all came together to fight the Qing forces and boxers, equally defeating them, humiliating China further, and forcing the Chinese to pay indemnity payments, which would go on all the way till World War II. Yes, the term century of humiliation for China has a long and painful history behind it. And please keep that in mind when we're talking about China right after World War II. By the way, the Boxer Rebellion is quite an interesting event, and if you want a rather in-depth explanation of it, you can go over to the Pacific War Channel at YouTube, where I did make an episode on it. I really have to stop that. Carrying on. Now, the recently established German Empire colonized the northeastern part of New Guinea, the Bismarck Archipelago, the northern Solomon Islands, western Samoa, and Nauru. Finally, the entrance of the United States of America into the Pacific the last main foreign player in the region, would coincide with the downfall of the Spanish Empire. In 1898, the same year the U.S. annexed Hawaii, American intervention in Cuba led to the ultimate conquest of the Philippines and Guam in the Pacific. Weakened from their defeat by the hands of the United States, the Spaniards could do nothing to protect their Pacific possessions, including the Marianas, the Carolines, and the Palau Islands. So, in 1889, they sold these territories to the German Empire for a significant sum of gold max, ending the Spanish presence in the region. The start of the next century would see an increasing American interest in the Pacific with the colonization of Wake Island, the Midway Atoll, the Johnston Atoll, Eastern Samoa, and the Howland and Baker Islands, thus completing the colonization of Oceania. As you can see, most of Southeast Asia and Oceania were left in the hands of Western powers by the turn of the 20th century. Oh boy, I know it must have been pretty difficult to listen to me ramble on about such a lengthy part of history, with so many territories being cut up and given to others. Yet, it's very important to know this information, because with such actions in Asia come repercussions. Maybe not immediately, but as you let this stuff boil over, well, some major conflicts arise. Go figure, right? Now you might be thinking to yourself, okay, with all of these Western powers taking these places in Asia, how did this unfold into what we know as the Pacific War? Well, for that, we're going to need another prelude episode. Sorry about that. I know all of you want to start hearing about the great naval battles and the island hopping of the Pacific War, but we really need to cover some of this crucial information first. Thus, the next episode, we're going to cover a fascinating history behind the opening of Japan from its Sakoku isolationist days into the militaristic Japanese empire we see emerge in the 20th century. I would also like to take this time to remind all of you, the YouTube channel, Kings and Generals, provides the entire story week to week in a different and unique format. Whereas here, you will get more of an uncut theatrical and more expansive version of the events, over on their YouTube channel, you can watch the events unfold in fantastic battle animations, condensed for your viewing pleasures. 
So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue helping us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Hell, for myself, I also happen to be a much smaller YouTuber in comparison to Kings and Generals, might I add. But my channel can be found at the Pacific War Channel on YouTube. There, I have a lot of content covering Asia in the 19th century, such as the Opium Wars, the Taiping Rebellion, the Boxer Rebellion, hell, the First Sino-Japanese War. It's quite a lot there, and it's an ironic name for a channel, given the name of this podcast now. So, why don't you show me some love? Go check it out. Please subscribe. It would mean a lot to me. So let me leave you with this. That being what to expect from this podcast series. We plan to tell you the events, but really in depth, like from the very eyes of the soldiers who were there. On this podcast, you're going to hear brutal hardship, up close and personal. We're also going to expand much more on events and give you the backstories, tell you about the people who made this all happen. We will be covering the entire Pacific War of 1941 to 1945 week to week. That means a ton of different intertwined battles over many regions of Asia and the Pacific. If you enjoy your raw and uncensored version of the war, well this is the right place for it. Because when we get to the island warfare in particular, things are going to get quite messy. Just ask General Tomoyuki Yamashita. So join us next time for episode 0.2, the Meiji Restoration of Japan.